reach for the sky, boy. Rolex work. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Doing the Favorite Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Brown. With me, as always, my mutual host, the Husky Heartthrob, the sexual intellectual, Barry Frost, and our very special guest this evening, former ECW champion, former two-time ECW tag team champion, eight-time WWF hardcore champion, and the motherfucking hardcore icon, just incredible. Justin, thank you so much for joining us, man. Well, thank you, guys. It's it's my pleasure. I'm happy to be here, man. It's uh, it's great to you know just sit here and talk some wrestling with you guys. Awesome. Um, I gotta start. Barry is a monster ECW fan. I got right into right it on. like later in life. I was a big '90s like Monday Night Wars kid. Yep. Not a lot of ECW. Um, got into that later after the uh, DVD dropped in 2004. It's kind of when I like fell in love with it. Your career is an absolute fascinating one, man. You've been around. You've been everywhere. And let's start off in the very beginning. Um, getting trained by and with the Hart brothers, with Lance yeah. Storm and Chris Jericho, what was that like? Uh, I mean, it was it was great. I was uh, I was a fan my whole life. You know, uh, when I was 15 years old, I was wrestling in the backyard. You know, I knew this is what I wanted to do. And um, you know, uh, after I graduated high school, I was uh, I worked at a grocery store bagging groceries uh, when I was 18, and I saw an article on my break from uh, in a pro wrestling illustrated magazine uh, for the Hart brothers. Uh, I live in Connecticut, so it was, you know, but back then there was no internet and uh, still a lot of kayfabe where, the, you know, you didn't really know if you didn't know anybody in the business, you know, it was very hard to get a, you know, find a school and stuff like that. So I found the, you know, I saw this my opportunity and uh, I grabbed it. I saved up my money and um, the summer of 1992, I went to Calgary to uh, to train to, you know, in the arts and uh, with Lance and Chris and and all that good stuff. It was uh, it was awesome. You know, I didn't realize back then uh, how, you know, obviously none of us did uh, realize where we were going to be headed in the business. But it just goes to show uh, the kind of school the hearts were running, you know, to put out three guys like Jericho, myself and Lance Storm, of course, you know. Yeah, I always uh, like I said, to me, you're one of those the last guys that's still active. That's a tie to the old school era, you came sure. into the new generation era, attitude era, all that. You're like one of those last ties into, you know, into all that. Right. And, and it's so fascinating to me. Now, as a young guy, how did you get signed, you know, to WWE so early in your career? You weren't even 21. So, yeah, um, it, I was just, you know, it's a lot of my career seems to be this way. I was in the right place at the right time. Um, I live in Connecticut. So, uh, like I said, you know, after I trained with the hearts, I had maybe 10 matches up in Calgary, my first 10 professional matches up there. And, uh, when I came back to Connecticut, uh, you know, I did a little bit of indie work, but very, I mean, I'm talking two or three matches little. And, um, I, you know, finally there was, uh, I got the guts. Um, there was a WWF back then, but WWE house show, 
about 20, 30 minutes from my house. And uh, I went there, you know, uh, went right backstage, uh, you know, went through the, you know, where the wrestlers drive up, you know, figured I was a wrestler. Now I could do that stuff. And, you know, if you if even today, if you walk back there and you look like somebody, believe it or not, they let you in. Um, so I went <laughs> no. back there. Oh, that's a, that's a shoot because we never had passes, by the way. People think they give you like wrestling passes. You don't have them. So, uh, so anyways, um, so I just went back there. I brought my gear, um, and I was introduced, uh, to, you know, I was, saw who was running, uh, the show, which was, uh, back then producer Tony Gurria and, uh, the other producer, Rene Goulet, which ended up being very instrumental in my career. Uh, and I told them I was trained by the hearts. Um, you know, I have my gear with me, uh, cause you were always taught, you know, as a youngster, bring your gear. If someone no shows, you know, travel, whatever, you know, you're always there, ready to go. Um, you know, he, he was very kind, Tony Gurria. He said, well, we don't need anybody tonight, but you're more than welcome to uh, pull up a chair and watch from backstage, which is what I did. So uh, at the end of the show, you know, it was fun. My first experience in the WWF locker room, WWE locker room, I went to thank him for his hospitality. And he said, um, you know, since you're trained by the hearts and you live right around here, he goes, we're starting a new show that's going to be in Manhattan every other week. We're going to tape it called Monday Night Raw. We could use some extras. So, uh, you know, and he gave me his card. And basically, that was it. That's how I started to get booked, uh, you know, call it doing jobs or extra work, whatever. Um, but that's uh, how I got started, just simply from uh, showing up and introducing myself and uh, getting that information out there. And again, right place, right time. Manhattan was an hour and a half from my house. And, you know, they were going to be needing a lot of guys to do jobs. So uh, I was just, you know, I was there, uh, you know, and I sh started showing up to pretty much all of them at that time because they were all very close. If they weren't in Manhattan, they were uh, within an hour and a half, two hours of where I lived. So uh, that's why I ended up doing a lot of that work uh, in the early days of Raw. <clears throat> Timing in right place, right time. That, that can mean a lot in life, man. So good for yeah. you. Yeah. As far as your, uh, you said, enhancement work i don't i don't not want to use a lot of insider terms but as far as like your enhancement work any early memories of doing that like uh, was it rough i know there was a video on twitter of you getting knocked out which yeah is wild uh, talk to me about that uh, it was rough i mean uh, especially back then um I, I i don't think the guys and gals realize how good they have it today um i came from an era where it was still very much the business was protected and uh, kayfabe was still very much a thing. And you didn't allow, like now, and I don't mean this in any disrespect towards anybody, uh, but now anybody with $3,000 could go to a wrestling school and uh, pay the $3,000 and become a pro wrestler, right? It's almost like pay to play. Back then, man, it, it wasn't like that. You literally, I remember literally 12 guys showing up at the Hart Brothers camp and myself and one other fella graduated and finished the camp. Because what they purposely try to do is test you physically, mentally, um, to see if you're tough enough. And are they going to let you into this brotherhood? Because, you know, the more people we let into this little circle, you know, the more guys are competing, guys and gals are competing for jobs. And back then, they were very protected because there were so limited amounts of full-time work as wrestlers. Um, you had to really uh, be, you know, you had to really stand out in order for you to break into the business, uh, which is, you know, something that still occurred back then. So, you know, a lot of times when you were doing extra work, they would beat you up, man. They would test you to see, 
Uh, does he have what it takes to keep coming back? Is he, uh, is he going to whine and cry to the office? Yeah, all kinds of stuff, you know, that I don't want to get into. But you certainly were tested uh, to see how tough you really were, which is something that today they don't do, which is good in some ways. Don't get me wrong. But, uh, you know, in some ways, uh, I'm glad I came through the way I did because uh, kept you honest, you know, kept you uh, having this appreciation and respect, quite frankly, of what you do in the ring uh, and not just anybody can do it. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a bit, uh, you know, old and antiquated way of thinking. But, uh, you know, you earned your respect back in those days because uh, those were real men back then, you know, Kurt Hennings and. Uh, you know, those kinds of guys, Roddy Piper, uh, Ted DiBiase, uh, Jake Roberts, getting in the ring with those guys. I mean, they, they didn't play games. So, uh, but again, you know, I was grateful to have the, the Samoans, as you, you were claiming in the video that you saw, you know, they didn't play games, man. You had to really earn your keep. And I'm curious uh, if it was still like that, how many of those uh, guys we see today in AEW flipping around, if they would be... Uh, doing that today you know what i mean like uh, if the samoans ever got a hold of those boys how would it be right you know mm -hmm. what i mean it was like it, i'm just curious you know it's uh, it took a different type of uh i don't know of attitude or uh you know determination i'm not saying they don't have it but i'm just saying that it's just a whole different game the way it was then you know uh so yeah <laughs> you know you you'd mentioned you know your enhancement work and that was as uh pj walker yes right yep, yep. so what were your initial impressions of Vince McMahon and how did the Aldo Montoya character uh, happen to come about? Uh, I always, uh, Vince and I have always had a good relationship. I always got along very well with him, especially for being an underneath uh, enhancement guy. Um, and the way I really got my job as Aldo was uh, once again, uh, and, and it rings true quite a bit in my story, right place, right time. Uh, the office in Stanford is about 45 minutes from where I live. Um, and I was still PJ Walker. I wasn't out Aldo yet. Um, Brian Lee was coming in to do the fake undertaker. So, uh, they set up a ring at the production studio, which is right, right across the street from the office building, uh, you know, the big Titan towers and, uh, Tony Gurria set it up. He's like, look, we're going to need you all week to go in and work out with Brian, uh, Brian Lee and Mark, the undertaker, um, for, you know, this, they're going to debut them on raw and I'm going to be the one that works with them. We'll give you 150 bucks a day. So, okay. I was going to make 150 bucks a day, Monday through Friday. That's, you know, almost, you know, it's a good amount of money. That's almost a thousand dollars. Not quite, but you know, seven something, whatever it is with the math. And I was stoked. Then I get to go work with him on raw. Um, so we did all the practice, all that stuff. So on Friday, Vince McMahon wants a dress rehearsal because he wants to see it for himself, what it looks like. So it was just me and Brian Lee and a referee, uh, Pat Patterson and Vince McMahon and Mark, Mark Calloway, uh, watching. And so Brian Lee and I, Brian Lee as Taker with the, the whole gear, full makeup, you know, a full dress rehearsal. We went through it. Everything went really well. So uh, Vince is talking to Brian and Mark uh, over there in the corner. And Pat comes inside the ring and uh, he starts asking me questions. He goes, you know, who trained you? And I was like, I was trained by the hearts, you know, and Pat popped and he, he told Vince, you know, out loud, he's like, Hey Vince, you know, he was trained by the hearts, you know, and Vince kind of, you know, shrugged it off. And then Pat's like, uh, you know, uh, what nationality are you? I said, well, sir, I'm Portuguese. And he goes, you know, again, he pops and he yells over to Vince. Hey Vince, this kid's Portuguese. I'm like, okay, that's a little weird, but whatever. And then the last thing was <laughs> Pat asked me, he goes, do you speak it? 
I said, yes, I do, sir. And then he, he said, oh, Vince, this kid speaks Portuguese, blah, blah, blah. They both pop. And I'm like, okay, again, that's really weird with the Portuguese thing. I didn't get it. So lo and behold, you know, we go our separate ways. I work with uh, Brian Lee as the undertaker, the faker taker on Raw. On Raw everything went great. Uh, a couple weeks later at television, Vince pulls me aside and we go for a walk uh, outside this war memorial and, um, you know, takes me out on side, on, outside, uh, you know, in this little balcony and, uh, you know, gives me the speech where, uh, you know, uh, do you want an opportunity here in the WWF? And uh, I said, of course, you know, what does a 21 year old, 20 year old kid say to Vince McMahon when he's offering you a job? And um, lo and behold, they were looking for a Portuguese character, a Portuguese kid who could speak it to fit the role of Aldo Montoya. And that was me. And from that day in the office training with Brian Lee, they got that information and processed it because Aldo was created before me. Um, I just happened to fit the bill uh, for Aldo. So once again, right place, right time, because if I was never there. I probably would not have been that Portuguese kid um, that they were looking for to do Aldo. So again, um, you know, that's kind of how it all got started. And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, allegedly business was down in the U.S. They were looking to expand in South right. America. Absolutely. Uh, I believe that Portuguese is the main language in South America, Brazil. In Brazil, yep, and absolutely. The World World Cup going on at the time, I believe, around '94. Yep. yep. So, yeah, I actually went to a, my honeymoon was in Dominican Republic, and we hung out with people from Portugal, and I. I tell you, well, man, some beautiful women down there, boy. <laughs> <laughs> they certainly do. Yeah, they certainly do. Absolutely. Um, that um, the mask, the Aldo Montoya yeah. mask. What did yeah. you think about that? Um, it was. Uh, I'd never worked under a mask before, um, mind you. I only had a year or two in the business, uh, but I'd never worked under a mask. And uh, uh, the way they had made it, the way it looked, because they had a just you know a whole uh, art department that made uh, this. You know, I looked like a Power Ranger. It was very much like a cane mask at first. Uh, it was more like a face plate. And the girls uh, were hard pressed for time. Like I, I actually went to an S&M shop in New York because they were doing kind of stuff like that. They wanted a plate <laughs> that wasn't plastic, something that was that you could move in, right, for flexibility. Uh, they didn't know how to how to master it. Um, so they ended up doing the Aldo mask, which is a lot like Kane's mask or even Undertaker's match when he broke his face. Um, they just at the time, they, the girls didn't have time to, to get it done the way we had wanted. So instead of making it out of a rubber or plastic material, like it would have been if it was Kane or Undertaker's old faceplate mask, they just did it out of cloth, which did not end up looking right. It ended up looking like the jock strap that everybody's, you know, talks about but uh it wasn't out wasn't of gonna go there it wasn't out of lack of trying you know they it was uh the design like the cart the the character they drew looked a hell of a lot cooler um than the the mask that they produced but again back then it wasn't we didn't have the resources though that they have today um they literally had two seamstresses putting all that stuff together so a lot of this stuff was done you know like you know in a week you know what i mean so it wasn't like you know just you can get it done uh whenever you want so yeah we were fighting with time and uh, they wanted to debut me quickly so it just uh that's just how it happened you know very simply it was like no big they wanted to make it work it's just the mask never quite got to uh to what they saw um you know on the, on the drawing so to speak now to me some of the newer school fans when the click is mentioned it's always, you know, 
Sean, Diesel, Razor, Triple H, and Xbox kind of thrown in there. But people kind of forget that you were there even before Triple H was. Yeah. yeah. And so when you, you know, were they the first ones to kind of take you under their wing and kind of show you around, like take us into getting, Mm -hmm. I guess, initiated into the click? Yeah. um, Yeah, it was uh, the first tour I uh, was ever on house show wise was before Aldo was uh, I was traveling with I started traveling with Razor. Because, you know, I was too young to rent a car. And, a, uh, you know, first time I, I went to one of the towns, I hitched a ride with Tony Gurria and Chief J Strongbow. And uh, Razor asked me when we when I got to the town, when we were all at the building, he's like, who are you traveling with? And I said, with Gurria and uh, Chief. And he's like, dude, you're going to get heat traveling with the office. He goes, come with me. I'm by myself. And that's how it happened. You know, just something as simple as that. So that's, you know, kind of just excuse me, from there, just uh, every week, we just ended up with each other because I, I, hell, I was working with Kevin as Diesel um, at, when I was PJ Walker, I was doing house shows, uh, you know, in small high schools against Kevin. So I'd known Kev and Scott, you know, since 93. And then X-Pac came in to do the one, two, three kid gimmick. So I, I came in around the same time as, uh, as Sean Waltman did, you know, way before Hunter. I know Hunter came in in 95 slash 96 which was, you know, he was, I was there before him, believe it or not. Now, you stated in past interviews that uh, you did work a lot with Pat Patterson when you were yes. there. Yeah. And obviously, rest in peace. I mean, obviously, his input on the business is impeccable and amazing. Talk to me about what it was like to work with him. He was just on a different level uh, mentally, like uh, his ideas, the way he would put matches together, the vision he had is, uh, you know, like a lot of the way you would see, for example, a Shawn Michaels match. Um, that's Pat Patterson's vision, for example. The way Shawn bumps, the way he would put his matches together, um, that's how Pat's brain was. So if you could imagine, the best way I could tell you, because I could talk shop all day and it, it gets lost in translation, Shawn's execution and his matches, the way he worked, the, his bumps especially that he took, that was all Pat Patterson. You know, a lot of it, of uh, you know, the style, the way Sean would bump and feed and those big over the top things, the flips in the corner and all all that shit was Pat Patterson. Uh, the selling, the spit, um, the, the huge bumps. That was all Pat's idea. Not necessarily his ideas, but his influences, I should say, interpreted then by Sean, of course. But it came directly from the book of Pat Patterson. So it was like that kind of influence that he had. And uh you know, he was just he was just on a different level. He saw things, uh, the entertainment value of things that a lot of people wouldn't see just from looking at, um, you know, whether it's a certain skit or a certain match or, you know, what has to happen in a certain match to get to, uh, you know, from point A to B. He was just he was just really, really next level, you know, and and uh, just a, a pleasure to be around if you got to know him, because if you didn't get to know him, he was a, like if you. He was almost in a way which intimidated a lot of people, certainly intimidated me. Like he wouldn't fuck with people if they weren't any good. Like Pat didn't want to be stuck with jabronis that didn't want that didn't know how to work. You know, he would kind of make fun of some guys that couldn't work. And I'm not going to name names because it doesn't do you any good. But like Pat wouldn't fuck with them. He just messed with people that like had the it thing, you know, and, and not necessarily if they were on top or not. But if Pat saw that you could work then he was interested in you. 
you know, if he didn't think you could work, then he was like, oh, look at this jabroni, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So, yeah, but he was uh, he was a cool dude, man. You got to You had to be on the right side of him. But uh, he was a cool dude. Now, you were, you know, you were there for a few, you know, a few years and you were there during the transition from that kind of cartoonish era to the new generation era. Yeah. And could you see the the change coming? Was there, you know, what were the circumstances involved kind of into that change in direction? I think, I mean, the circumstances were definitely uh, business was way down. They started with the new generation. Of, a lot of it was out of need, in my opinion. I mean, you know, Hogan had uh, had kind of the whole Hogan thing had, had run its course at that time, at least in the WWE. Of course, the new, you know, of course, he, he changed scenery and was hugely successful with uh, WCW slash NWO when he finally turned heel. But, uh, you know, I just think it took it took that to make everyone change. I think it took Scott and Kevin going over um, to kind of wake everyone up. I don't think Vince would have changed his business and the way he did business if Scott and Kevin had stayed, um, because it's something you can say about complacency. And uh, Scott and Kevin were pretty close with Vince. I know money was horrible. I, I mean, Scott was uh, working upper upper middle card, he was in that IC title spot and he was barely making 250 a year, you know, and people, I mean, that's a lot of money for normal people, but not to be a, a WWE on TV champion, every week. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. on, on, uh, and, and traveling the amount of, you know, and traveling what we were traveling and hurting the way we were hurting physically. And, you know, I mean, Scott told me several times, he goes, man, I just bought a new house and I literally freak out and can't sleep. Cause I hear the lights turning on like around my property and I don't know how I'm going to pay the electric bill. So, I mean, if you're sweating it that much, dude, there's something wrong. So, uh, anyways, it was time for a change when they went over, they, they wanted the money, they offered them great money and it was just a spark in everybody. It was a spark for Scott and Kevin that got to do the NWO. They got Hulk back over when he turned heel WWE felt for the first time threatened and then started, you know, kind of amping up their their game and doing things heading into the Attitude Era that they would have never done. Steve Austin broke through, you know, perfectly. And, uh, you know, he was already starting to kind of to go. But WWE then was starting to, for the first time, allowing him to do that because Steve had wanted to do that since he was the ringmaster. They weren't letting him. But after that, when guys started to go over and business started to really hurt, then Vince started to, you know, I got to do this or I'm going to be screwed. And uh, that's when the best from both sides started to really come out and everybody was just creative and, and doing amazing things. And I mean, you know, arguably the best time in the business financially for either company, you know, it was, it was a good time and for everybody, really. That's actually a great segue. My next question: um, You weren't getting much work in the WWF in your towards the end of your initial run, so you went to Memphis for a little bit, USWA for six weeks, I believe, and you were just it was not it was it wasn't yeah. that, wasn't right for you, wasn't a good fit, and you negotiated with WWE. And the one thing, tell me if this is true or not, was it was big for them for you not to go to WCW? Yeah, yeah. The they they didn't want to suffer the PR loss of uh, another one of their guys jumping ship. 
Scott and Kevin had told me for a while, you know, just get your release. We'll get you paid down here. And, um, you know, I went to Vince's office, sat with him one on one, which was really difficult. But uh, I, I said, Vince, you know, you're not doing anything with me. I feel like I could help. I went to Memphis. I tried to do what you, you know, and he, he wouldn't do it. He goes, it's just from a from a PR standpoint, it's going to look like everyone in my locker room is leaving. He goes, I'm not worried about Aldo Montoya. Uh, going down there and, and, you know, doing business. I'm worried about the perception of what another one of my guys that is signed going over there. So, uh, you know, long story short, ECW and Paul Heyman, Paul and Vince worked it out. So where my contract went uh, right over to to, uh, to Heyman instead of, uh, you know, rolling over to Vince. And, uh, and spent, the, you know, the rest of my, uh, you know, contract with Paul until that ended. And you you said in previous interviews that that was the best thing that ever happened to you at ECW. Obviously, it's yeah. where you made your name. It's it's what you're known for. At the time, though, was it frustrating? Because you know, like you said, Kevin Scott said you could go down there and get paid, and it's a business, and you want to make money. Was that frustrating for you at the time? Oh uh, no, no, not as frustrating uh, because um, I thought you know nobody could uh, really see the what was going to happen in 2001 which was both ECW and WCW going bankrupt and kind of going away, which meant hundreds, literally, literally hundreds of jobs, full-time wrestling jobs just evaporate. And I was lucky enough, and we'll get to it, but I was lucky enough to get picked up then. But uh, no, I just thought my time would come. I was, And I was also making $150,000 a year with Paul Heyman, which is not bad money um, you know, at the time, only wrestling twice a week. So I just figured you know, I'll make my name there um oh you know around that time and then when it's right i will go to you know wcw or back to wwe it just unfortunately you know both companies went out of business and uh you know but everything happened i guess the way it was supposed to you know i, I don't regret staying in w or uh, in ecw i don't at all because i ended up you know main eventing uh, you know tons of their pay-per-views and i finished up to the end and you know, in some way, uh, it was a badge of honor, and uh, ECW has always held a really special place in my heart and in my career, and uh, I'm glad I, I did that, you know. Now, before before we jump into ECW and, and all the good stuff that I like, um, you were there for a very infamous now wrestling event that took place, the the curtain call in MSG. Mm. Now, see, I've yeah. always, you know, people always put on that, Vince wasn't, you know, he wasn't there. He wasn't, but see, I was always told that MSG Vince yeah, he was, was there. there. Yeah, no, he's Vince there. Was there. Vince was so there. So why why didn't you go out? I guess this two part question. Why didn't you go out? And did Vince know about it? And of course, this played in later when DX yeah. all started up. Right. But give us your recollections of. Uh, no, I I was there, uh, and Vince did know it was going to happen. Um, it was Scott and Kevin's last night. Uh, they knew what was going to happen. Sean was obviously going to go through with it. Sean and everybody knew what was going to happen. The boys knew what was going to happen. Um, I wasn't going to do it because, A, we saw what happened to Hunter getting punished. And if I was to go out there, I wouldn't have been punished. I would have been straight up fired, if not strangled. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it's just one of those things, you know, nothing happened to Sean because it couldn't. Right. He was the world champion at the time, if I'm not mistaken. But, uh, yeah, it just it was uh, Vince knew uh, Vince didn't make, you know, he, he didn't make a huge deal about it at the time. 
Um, but I think looking back, it was just one of those moments in, in wrestling that kind of changed the landscape because back then it's, it was still very much kayfabe. And uh, it was just one of those breaking kayfabe moments that we see so much of today, you know, where fans could, you know, say thank you, blah, blah, or whatever. It was one of those feel good moments that are done, you know, quite a bit now. But uh, it was the first time done in the WWE and, of course, against the the boss's orders, so to speak. So, uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, it was that was um, at the end of the day, I'm glad it happened. And I'm sure Vince is glad it happened because it ended up going down in the history books as one of those cool stories. But at the time, let's just say it wasn't so cool for uh, for Vince and for Hunter, of course, you know. So you go from the USWA, you go into ECW, Paul takes your contract, 150K, two days a week. Sounds like a dream. What was it like for uh, what was it like for you when you first got to ECW? It had to be a bit of a change going from WWF at the time to it was, ECW. Yeah, it was a bit of a change, but it wasn't, uh, wasn't too bad. I mean, uh, I had a lot of friends there. And what I ended up uh, realizing was the style was not as bad as I thought. A lot of it, if not most of it, was uh, just a really well done work. And, uh, you know, I was intimidated at at a lot of uh, what they were doing there. But, uh, you know, after a couple of weeks, I just fit right in and it just, you know, it just seemed right. Everybody was so passionate and working uh, really hard uh, to, to make this thing move. And uh, there was there was a level of professionalism that I didn't expect. I thought, it, you know, it looked it's amazing how professional and how well things ran for something that looked so uh, archaic and chaotic, um, because believe it or not, a lot of it was a work. Uh, we just had it down pat. And it was just this very special time in wrestling, something that I don't think can ever be duplicated um, just for various reasons that, you know, the public and just, you know, we couldn't do that today in today's cancel culture. You know what I mean? Uh, but, you know, without the Internet and everything, it was like the last great punk rock thing uh, in the 21st century or the 20th century, whatever, you know, you know something that'll never be done again. And and the fans in ECW always seemed like they demanded more. They knew what they wanted, and you guys had to, you know, you had to perform up to that level, basically. Oh yeah. Or they I mean, would let you know. Oh certainly. If I mean, if you didn't, uh, if you didn't give the ECW fans, you know, kind of what uh, what they were expecting, they would let you know. I mean, they were the most vocal fans, whether you know you had a great match or whether you screwed something up, I mean, which was in in a way, you know, intimidating because, you know, where else are you going to get instant critiquing of your matches? Right. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) excuse me, you're out there, uh, you do a spot or two and they're, they're telling you uh, if this sucks or if it's good or if it's not good. So yeah, it could be, uh, it's actually petrifying in some ways, you know what I'm saying? A lot of our younger listeners aren't going to know who this name is probably, but Guys, my age, I'm 40 years old. We definitely know. What was it like to have Nicole Bass as a valet? She was sweet. Um, she really wasn't from the world of pro wrestling. Um, she was from bodybuilding, and you know, she had done the Howard Stern show and stuff like that. Uh, but she was a she was a sweet, sweet woman. Uh, very kind. Very fun to be around. Um, not what you would expect. You know, she's very quiet. Actually. A very feminine woman for somebody of her size and stature, you know, being six foot plus, you know, 250, 260 pounds. You would think she's, 
you know, a bit more on the masculine side as her appearance might show you. But uh, she was actually a very sweet and feminine uh, woman. And, you know, she was she was nice. I miss her. She was a she was a good person. She was really sweet and entertaining in a in a, not necessarily always a good way. But uh, she would screw up so much that she was entertaining in that way. <laughs> bless her heart. God bless her. You know? That's cool. Yeah. And, and see, I, you know, being from Ohio, we just seen it on TV. And it was at yeah. 2, it was at 2 a.m. Right. And then Heat Wave 98 rolls around. Dayton, Ohio. Yep. I, I was 16 years old. I was like, fuck it. I'm going. Oh, well. Well, you know? That's awesome. So I, I'm like, look, I'm going to be, you know, let's get to there. You know, doors open at six. Let's get there at five. Right. Nobody will be there. When I get oh, there, there's a jammed. thousand people yeah. all yep. the way out in the parking lot. The new Jack and the Dudleys did the spot. Falls yep. and Axel are at the bar out front of the yeah. hair arena. Didn't they tear it down, and, the Hera? Oh, uh, I think it's, is the hair still there? I think it's, no. I think it's still up. No, it's, they tore it down. They tore it down? Recently, yeah. I thought there was like a hurricane that tore down something. No, something happened with Tahara. It's not there anymore, believe it or not. Well, I was there, and I was a, I was a Taz Mark in '98. <laughs> okay. I was a Taz Mark. I was there for his big revenge on Bam Bam. He lost the yep. belt, you know, at Living yep. Dangerously. They went through the ring, and here comes Just Incredible and Jerry Lynn. And yeah. stole the fucking show. And I was like the opener. And dude takes a tombstone pile driver off the middle rope. Yeah. <laughs> like, where yeah. do you go from here? Yeah. Uh, take us to your yeah. memories of, of that match. And, you know, basically your memories of Jerry Lynn. Oh, I mean, uh, it was just it was just one of those matches where we I mean, I loved working with him to, to work with Jerry Lynn, honestly, is a night off. Um, and I've had harder matches, more physical matches on shows in front of like 50 people. Um, it was just so, I know it's going to sound really weird. It was so easy. And, uh, he, he was always so good that he made it easy. Um, we just figured in ECW back then we were just trying to impress. So we each, you know, everybody was at the time. So we just got a bunch of moves. We were like, what have people never seen? And uh, we came up with the Frankensteiner off the top to the floor through a table. Yep. I figured that was a bump I could take that was pretty cool looking, you know, and, and safe, believe it or not. Um, the tombstone off the middle rope, because um, the way I hit it, his head never hits the ground. We thought that was safe. So we just got a bunch of like ooh and ah moments. We put them together. And then in between of those ooh and ah moments, we just added real good old school pro wrestling. And, uh, you know, like bookended it with those big moves and uh, it just worked out, man. It was a dream. I mean, it was actually, uh, you know, nobody got hurt. Uh, we loved it. We had fun doing it, which is, uh, you know, is rarity these days. So, uh, yeah, it was just uh, nothing but great memories. And it's funny to still hear about it to this day. It's like one of the matches, um, that I constantly, uh, hear about to this, you know what I mean? And it's hard to, you know, other than, um, WrestleMania's, and other big events to to kind of hear something, especially on a smaller scale of pay-per-views, to hear about. Because when people talk about uh, pay-per-views, they always talk about Heat Wave. Not just for my stuff, but the other, the rest of the card in general was one of those uh, great cards uh, and, in wrestling history, you know? Well, and the crazy thing is, is that's coming a month and a half later. Right. After Cactus goes off the cage. Yes. At King of the Ring. 
Right. So everybody, like everybody, is an ooh and an on, and then just that whole pay per view like blew that away. I thought overall. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was insane. Like, and that for yeah. my first ECW event, I was I was hooked. Yeah, that's perfect. And uh, you know, it, it, it usually with wrestling, it does take a perfect storm. Like, uh, Hera Arena was special, and having the fact, like you said, the fact that it was sold out. And it's a great environment. It's not like, you know, you could, you know, a lot of times wrestling gets crushed because of a bad attendance. You know, if you get a half empty arena and the crowd's like, uh, it, it, it hurts. It hurts the matches. Like, so when you have an arena full, you know, three, 4,000 people just jam packed up and ready and pumped, it makes the wrestling in the ring look that much better. Um, and you really draw from that energy. So it makes a good show a great show, you know, and it makes a great show legendary. It's almost like, I wish fans would realize that when you go to an event like that, the more you cheer and the, the more hype you are, the better it is for the wrestlers and yourselves. It's like you, the fans, ECW fans realize this. The fans are just as important to ECW as the, as ECW, the wrestling, because they were, you know what I mean? Without the environment, it's it was the whole everything. package. It, yeah. They were part of the show, and I wish more fans would realize that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm not saying take it, take over shows in a negative way. Just be super cool and super hype, because uh, they could really, you know what I mean? It takes it takes a special, you know, mixture to catch lightning in a bottle. You know? Yeah. And I think that was obviously the best example of that is the early stages of the pandemic when there was no fans, right. and yeah. how different it was for us to watch. We're like. And there was a lot of people that tapped out. They couldn't do yeah, it. You know what I mean? Right. And, and yeah, I had there was, time. there was times where I was struggling with it as well. And I I, yep. I watched as much wrestling as I can, and yep. it was it was difficult. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Yep. Um, a personal friend of mine was a giant Raven fan, so I'd be remiss. He actually texted me. You got to ask him this. Any cool Raven stories? Oh, not really, man. Not really. <laughs> and you know, I I no, not like that. I just uh, I never uh, hung out with Scotty never did we just you know we just wrestled we were good in the ring together but i never partied with them because at the time i was married well i still am married to the same lady and uh, so i didn't hang out and uh, get into any of the raven debaucheries <laughs> <laughs> oh that's kind of if you know my friend that's kind of funny i'm like sorry dude <laughs> yeah i try i would i would have told you too i would have told you <laughs> go ahead man. now okay and since the story's do you have any Tracy Smothers stories? No, no. You're, you're um, I just, us. <laughs> I know. I'm not. A, I'm not a very good. No, I tell you, I'm not a very good storyteller at all. But I really don't like. I just, you know, I just remember Tracy. Like he would fight anybody that messed with the ECW. Like if you went against the ECW locker room, like he'd be the like if there was a fight in the crowd or anybody messing with one of the guys, like he'd be the first one out. You know, I remember. Okay, here's a good Tracy. It's. I just, I'm not gonna do it justice. But uh, when that fight uh, that happened at the, I was main eventing the pay per view at Dream Wave 2000. Yeah, Tracy LA, came out. Yeah. Tracy came out of the showers with a towel, flip flops, and his curly hair, all shampoo <laughs> on it. Came out swinging, dick out, just ready to go <laughs> into the parking lot. I mean, I you know, but you know, I was in the ring. I got that second hand, but and I can't do it any justice because that's all I have. Like some people can tell good stories and they have this big setup. I'm horrible at that, so I get, like, intimidated telling stories. 
That's great. I, um, I got the uh, visual. There you go. <laughs> uh, you, earlier we talked about being um, trained Hart Brothers, Lance Storm, and then you eventually got to uh, tag up with him as the Impact players. How cool was yeah. that? Oh, it was great. It was great. It was uh, it was Heyman's idea, um, and uh, I don't know where he got the idea, but you know, just just the fact that we were trained by the Hearts together, I think, was enough. Um, and uh, we worked very similar. I mean, literally, he taught me, you know, everything. And uh, I guess what he lacked as far as charisma, attitude, like you know that you know I was doing a little bit of that Razor DX thing. Um, what he lacked in that department. Um, you know, I brought, and then what I guess I, you know, maybe I lacked in some technical wrestling, like, you know what I mean? So like Mm -hmm. our styles blended, like we were, you know what I mean? Like yin and yang, like whatever I had, he didn't have, and whatever he didn't have, uh, you know what I mean? It's like, we just complimented and, uh, you know, we brought the best out in each other, uh, plain and simple. You know, we, we knew each other's game. We knew, uh, like, okay, you do this better than me, so let's go that way. Or, you know, I'll take, I could take this bump better than you, or maybe it doesn't hurt me as much. Like, Lance would always take, like, some bigger moves because I was very much concussion prone. So any, like, big power bombs or something like that, he would take. You know, so I wouldn't have to do it, God forbid, to get hurt or whatever. So, you know, just little things like that. We always, like, took care of each other. And, like, we, we figured whoever does it best will move forward with. And we're very honest with it. So I think that's why the, the Impact players were so good and why it worked so well. You know, we were very unselfish in that way. Now, you know, you just brought it up, you know, concussion prone, which that didn't that didn't really even exist in wrestling prior to the Chris Benoit situation. Right. Looking back now, is there any kind of precautions you wish you would have taken or would you do everything kind of the still, you know, the same way? Um, I guess I would have done it the same way because believe it or not, I was pretty cautious. I kind of knew early on um, because I have had well over a dozen uh, concussions in the ring um, and wrestled with them. Unfortunately, um, the only thing I would have done differently was probably not wrestle with them. Um, you know, only a day or two after having them. Um, but other than that, I mean, I tried really hard not to get them. I never did anything stupid or, you know, something that, cause there's sometimes you go into a move knowing shit, this is going to hurt. Um, and I, I, I really tried to avoid that as far as head trauma went. So, no, I mean, I never did anything to where, like, anytime I had something, uh, somebody suggest doing a move to me and I was uncomfortable with it or knew it was going to ring my bell, I would always respectfully say, you know, I, I, I don't want to do this only because of. So I tried, you know, I, I, I after a while later, you know, to, in the later points of my career, I'd say the past, you know, you know, the or the the first 10 years, I was reckless with some of that stuff. But after that. I could say that I was very uh, aware of it and was, you know, really tried to protect myself. So I wouldn't change too much. Like I didn't take any unnecessary risks and what happened to me, I guess, can happen to anybody in contact sports. So I don't really have too much of a, other than getting proper rest. I don't have too much regret, you know? 
you know, hindsight's 2020. I mean, yeah, me and Barry played sports in the nineties and, you know, it was smelling salts, get back out there kind of deal. So it's, <laughs> yeah. we, yeah. we, we lived, it I mean, not on your degree, but you know, we experienced that too. Um, yeah. On our show, we talk a lot about like action figures and merch just because wrestling fans, I feel like that's all like kind of part yeah. of it. You know what I mean? Like I love yeah. keeping my action figures just like as memories I had of sure. being a fan back in the day. Any early memories of you getting your first action figure? I believe it was with ECW, the toy biz, yeah. correct? Uh, yeah. Um, it was really, really cool. Um, it's something I'll never forget. I mean, I still have, I'm looking right now. I probably have three or four of them, uh, just right here, um, in my house, uh, with the WWE ones and one of the legends ones. And uh, it's always special to have because, you know, who would have thought when you, when you're growing up that you're going to have a plastic action figure, right. um, you know, not to mention it was cool cause you made money on it, but uh, besides the money, it's just you're immortalized forever in this line of toys that represents something you loved so much as a child. Um, and it just really kind of tells you you've arrived. You know what I mean? Um, just like when Pro Wrestling Illustrated uh, was still popular, you know, I, I was number one in the top 10 ratings one year. I still have that. Uh, I think it's up somewhere. I took a picture of it. It's on my Twitter feed. And, you know, the I was number six in the top 500 and just stuff like that. Uh, it's more of just, you know, looking back as a mark. It's like when I was a kid, that's what I measured other guys. And I actually did it myself. So it's like I did something in this business, you know, I, I at, at some Absolutely. point I was I was on this uh, I was on a high tier, you know, uh, with a lot of my heroes. So, uh, you know, I'm very grateful, man. And uh, especially the toy thing, though, uh, it's something that you can't take away. You know, at, when I my first born, I used to show him the action figure and he'd go to school and bring it. And he's like, where's your daddy's action figure? <laughs> you know, because he didn't understand that they didn't have one. You know what I mean? It's like right. my daddy mm-hmm. has one. Because, you know, the kids don't understand that. But, uh, you know, it is really special. It meant a lot to me. And it still does. It still does. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you know, again, you got the Sandman. Yeah. And you've wrestled him several times. And I, I just retweeted a video today, his entrance at One Night Stand, where people yeah. went apeshit. Yeah. But were you nervous ever getting in the ring with him because he was, you know, drinking prior to the match? He was smoking. I mean, where he was ever no. too messed up to go? No, no. I mean, maybe a couple times. But, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I, Sandman was actually uh, pretty darn good in the ring. Um, and uh, I think, you know, I know this is going to sound asinine in some ways, but in ECW, um, a lot of the guys were – you know, a lot of us were on something <laughs> one, yeah. you know, one way or another in a lot of those matches. And we'd be lying if we said we weren't, um, you know, there's uh, I Sandman has never hurt me. He was actually pretty decent. He protected me uh, quite a bit uh, in today's society. Now, if somebody was to were to do that or to, you know, if I were to go out there sometimes the way I was in wrestling, you know, because to do some of the stuff we did in ECW, if you weren't a little bit numbed up. I don't think you were doing it, <laughs> you know, seriously. No, I'm so, uh, you know, a lot of the kids just don't, you know, and I'm glad it's changed and they don't believe in it, but, uh, no, I never bothered me. He never hurt me. You know, it was always, he was always pretty safe, believe it or not for the controlled chaos that was Sandman. He was pretty decent. Nice. You had a match with Sabu. I want to say <clears throat> anarchy rules. Yeah. Fucking unbelievable, man. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was shit match. holds up so well. Talk to me about that match or just working with Sabu in general. 
Um, yeah, I mean, uh, that's another one, too, uh, where, you know, it's just uh, with Sabu, especially you have to, uh, you know, you could talk it, you talk it through in the back, but you never know how it's going to hit because his stuff is so unorthodox. And a lot of times, you know, we did one spot where he did a chair top rope and he had me on a, a table that was uh, kind of going 90 degrees on the uh, guardrail. And he had me bent the wrong way where, like, he almost broke my back uh, when the way he hit the table. Because you never know where he's coming from or how he actually is going to land on you. So a lot of times, man, we were just, you know, close your eyes and hold your breath <laughs> and uh, see what happens. But those were that was one match in particular where uh, everything kind of worked out, thank God. Because working with Sabu, it was either going to be great or it was going to suck. There was no in between. Like he was either going to hit all his moves and it was going to look amazing, and uh, we'd have, we'd tell a good story, or Sabu was just going to shit the bed and not hit anything. You were going to get one or the other. And uh, Anarchy Rules was one of the good ones where we hit we hit everything. I was that match was dope. I still enjoy watching it to this day too as, as well. So thank you for saying that. And a banger ass shirt there with Sabu and Hayabusa. Yeah, that's uh, actually <laughs> I an can old. Dig it. Uh, that's a replica, believe it or not, of uh, Heatwave 98. 98, yeah, with yeah. the Shinzaki. Yeah. Yep. And, but, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, I love that match, too. But um, yeah. how far in advance were you, you know, because we've heard other ECW guys say, oh, my God, everything changed, like, you know, right up prior to, you know, match time. Yeah. How, how far in advance did you know you were getting the belt and – you know, was your run, how much control did you have over your run? Um, I only found out I was getting the belt at intermission uh, <laughs> into, yeah. Yeah. So it was about four or five matches into the show. Um, You're going over. Yeah, pretty much. And it was just, you know, something very basic like that. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but uh, what, what, what was the second part of that? How much control, like say oh, so, did you have in, in your in your championship run? I had, a good, I, I had a good amount of control, believe it or not. Um, you know, I, I was very much in charge of uh, my matches, the way I wrestled my matches. Um, my opponents, not so much. That was more of a, of a Paulie thing. The major angles with those people as well was more of a Paul thing. But how we got there, and uh, and as far as what happened in the ring um, was mostly, if not all, me. So yeah, I had quite a bit of a maybe I'd say a fifty-fifty split because Paul Paul was the outline, and then I would do the details kind of okay. thing. Um, speaking of Paulie, I'm always fascinated because I see him give these motivational speeches and some of these documentaries mm-hmm. and things like that, and yeah. you hear a lot. You hear so many stories, obviously. Sure. Um, talk to me what it was like to basically work underneath Paul Heyman, work with him. That had to be an experience, man. Yeah, it was, uh, it was great. I mean, what you see really is what you get. And, uh, I would say this and, uh, it, I hope this answers it. Um, Paul Heyman is a good mind. I'll say good mind for wrestling, if not great, but his greatest attribute is not so much booking or storytelling. It's what you said. Uh, he's a great motivator. He will take someone And that's what he did constantly in ECW was he would take someone that was, you know, kind of left to die by Vince McMahon as far as characters, Um, people that were, you know, left to say, well, we can't do nothing with him. 
he's not going to do any business, whatever. A lot of these uh, WWE rejects or WCW rejects. And when they come to Paul, Paul sees that as an opportunity. And he makes those people that got rejected by the WWE or WCW or whomever, makes them believe in themselves. Paulie made me believe I was just incredible. He made me believe, seriously, by talking to me in a certain way, day in and day out, that I could do this. And he put me in positions to succeed. So therefore, he's telling me this, but then also I'm starting to believe it. The more I believe it, the more he's starting to tell it. It's almost like he's he's making, he's that monster that he, you know, you're the monster he did create by giving you confidence and making you believe. Because it's amazing, dude. You could take someone, and someone as good as Paul is, you know, with his charisma and the way he talks and having the power to book you in these positions. Once he starts to get you to believe in yourself, then you're, you open up possibilities. So then you start coming up with your own shit. So not only now is not just Paul coming up with shit, but now you're believing in yourself and you have this belief system where you're coming outside of your comfort zone. So it's like the whole thing is firing on all cylinders, let's say, creatively. So like now it's not just Heyman talking you up. It's you believing everything that he's saying because you're seeing it kind of come to fruition. Therefore, you feel more comfortable. Therefore, you're willing to try different stuff. So he's 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 probably the best motivator slash coach uh, than that I've ever uh, you know done business with. Storyline wise, he would go second. And that's uh, that's a, that's something big to say. Not to say his storylines were not wonderful because they were, but that's how good of a coach he was, you know, and a motivator he was. Yeah. Now, you know, when ECW got the TNN deal, mm-hmm. were you guys excited? Were you expecting more money, like shit to pop off? And then kind of Vince kind of it seemed like Vince bought that out from under or offered more you know they basically took that slot i don't know how that happened um yeah. but you know I, or i don't even remember but uh, no i thought it was i thought it was good i thought we could do a lot with it i just it was it was just a complicated deal um from what i understand and more i hear about it the more what i remember it was more of a test run to see if if wrestling uh, would survive over there or mm-hmm. how it would do over there so, uh, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I, who really knows? But uh, I thought it was a great thing for us money-wise. It wasn't going to matter to us because we made money on pay-per-views and house shows. But um, just from, you know, uh, viewers and opening up different doors in parts of the country that had never seen us, I thought it was great. And uh, I think the ratings were actually, you know, on par, or if not better, than what AEW is doing. So. You know, uh, it's amazing because if we were on a different channel getting those numbers, I think we might have uh, held on to it a little bit longer than we had. So I don't know if you're aware of this, but your name came up on Grilling JR last week. Oh, it did. Interesting. So what it was was um, (laughs) they were covering No Way Out 2001. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I guess you came over just before, right, right around that time that paper yeah. occurred. But Dave Meltzer reported that um, basically you had a baby and you didn't have health insurance that you thought you had and you was having some financial issues and you were thinking about getting out of the wrestling business. Mm-hmm. Now, we hear a lot about what Meltzer says, whatever, whatever. Is there any truth to that? Um, not to get out of the wrestling business. Um, 
I was not having uh, issues. Uh, it was just a matter of Heyman was supposed to pay for my because uh, he had uh, when I had signed my contract with him, he was uh, he was supposed to like cover my health insurance, which means he would have had to get a policy and pay for it monthly, whatever the, the cost would be. Uh, he never ended up doing that. So um, he claimed he did. He had a policy. So in order for me not to have that contract null and void, um, which means I could have gone to WCW, he paid out of pocket for uh, my son to be born. So he paid about 75 grand. That doesn't get talked about. No. And he did pay those bills. And he did pay those bills, you know. Yeah. yeah. I'm, really glad, I'm really glad I asked that because when that came up, I was like, man, that sounds like a really shitty thing. Like, no, it does. You know, it's, it's funny because uh, nobody really knows what the narrative is. You know, people hear things, but the truth rarely comes out about uh, every single situation. And it's funny because uh, that has never hit until today. Like this week, I saw it somewhere else, too. Somebody mentioned it. And it's like, why would that come up now out of after all these years? Right. You know, it's like, but it's it's what it is. It's like, you know, it's um People make up shit to talk about when they got nothing else to talk about. And of all people, Jr. wouldn't know it. You know, how would he know? Yeah. And how would Melzer know? Right. <laughs> yeah, there was something that Jr. He even I think he said that he wasn't sure about what was going on there, but some of his, your friends spoke to him on not your behalf, but just kind of advocated like, hey, you should go ahead. And, we should hire this dude. He's talented. Da, 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 da. Uh, of course, you maybe were, something you know, like big that. Big time. Sure, sure. Yeah, maybe something like that. So who knows? They, yeah, could now, me, they could hire me now. Right. <laughs> yeah. and, and this is kind of a segue into that is the first, like basically first quarter of O2, you know, that's, you have Ron, they're bringing Ron H2O Waterman in who, oh, you know, yeah. fought in the UFC and all that stuff, the early days of the UFC yeah. yep. and Randy Orton. You, you worked with Randy Orton damn near every night before he debuted on TV. Yeah. Putting you is it? What was your role? Basically, did they say like when uh, one, two, three kid used to work the guys and he can go, so then right. they would use that guy more? Is that kind similar. of that your yeah. role? Okay. Yep, I did that with him, with uh, Shelton Benjamin, and with uh, Batista. I was Dave Big Dave's first match, and I'd worked with him on the house shows for a good month and a half, two months, you know, right before yeah. he debuted. So yeah, that's kind of what it was. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. You were at you were at WWF at the time uh, during my favorite WrestleMania, WrestleMania 17. Yep. Um, and the the build for that, you were and then you were tagging with X Pac at the time. Yeah. And then they just kind of just dropped that and did the invasion angle. That had yeah. to be disappointing, right? Very disappointing. Yeah. Yeah, it really sucked because I thought me and Kid could be a good team, you know, good heel team. And uh, you know, with the invasion, we just had to go our separate ways. You know, because I was ECW, he was WWE, and so many guys came in. It was like, if you know, I was lucky to just have a job. You know, I was lucky to be in, like, lost. I was lucky to be lost in the shuffle there because go. there were so many, you know what I mean? So many people didn't have jobs. If you think about it, when WCW uh, went away, I mean, so many hundreds of people lost their jobs. You know, it had to be fucking scary as fuck. So I was lucky to just be there. You know, right. and that was uh, that that ruined a lot of careers because that was my prime. Like if there was other companies, I would have never gone that, you know, that far down as far as being, you know, going from world champion to being a mid, mid to lower Carter. Um, I would have jumped or gotten out. But now there's nowhere to go. Right. 
So you mm-hmm. can't even go to another company other than, you know, New Japan wasn't wasn't what it is today. Right. And I went to I went to All Japan in 2003 and that was kind of the shits, too. So it wasn't like there were, you know, and then, I, then TNA happened, but that was nothing comparatively speaking financially. So I uh, really, uh, you know, up until maybe, you know, it really took 10 years of my career of just kind of being lost for, and I never really quite frankly recovered, which is a shame and I hate to talk about it, but you know, it, uh, it, it just, uh, it was the way the business was, you know? Yeah. I don't think a lot of people think about that when they think about ECW, WCW going on business and there's people today. And I know there's a lot of like back and forth online between like, AEW, WWE, NXT, but I think what gets lost in all that shuffle is there's more fucking places to work now. Right, right. You know what if I mean? I had, that's if oh, I that's had great. That, Ring of Honor, Impact, uh, even MLW. I mean, there's places to work. Back then, there wasn't. So uh, we, you really had a very limited amount of, of you know, I. Uh, it just it was very hard for wrestlers, you know. And if you weren't working for TNA or WWE, you weren't working. And Ring of Honor was still very young. And they weren't uh, able to give anybody like a hundred thousand dollar deal, and that's nothing, you know, right. comparatively speaking, you know. Um, so it, yeah, it was a rough time in wrestling for all the boys, you know. And and for the ECW alum, that's just something even to this day that has never ever died. It's never went yeah. away. And when those ECW reunion shows happened, you had One Night Stand, you had Hardcore Homecoming, Vince seen money. And yeah. kind of brought brought some of you guys back in, which you had wrestled. I think it was CM Punk's first, maybe yeah, his first match in the company. Yeah, yeah. yeah so take us uh, into the rebranded ECW and maybe that first match with Punk. I mean, it was uh, you know we were told they were going to bring it back, and uh, everybody at first uh, thought you know okay we'll see what happens, but we all knew that it wasn't going to be uh, anything close to what the old ECW was. And, uh, you know, they just uh, very simply uh, showed up to a taping at Manhattan Center, and uh, they just told me, you're wrestling, uh, this new kid is debuting, his name's CM Punk, and I knew of him from Ring of Honor. And uh, Punk was really cool, he was really nice and very uh, grateful. And uh, I remember after his match, um, he was so happy with how it went, because it was actually a really good TV match. Uh, his debut went off uh, without a hitch. It was a success. Um, he was actually uh, in tears. He was so happy. He's like, thank you so much. You know, you really did me a favor, uh, made me look like a million bucks. And he was he was ecstatic. So, you know, and at that time, I kind of figured that was more of my job uh, there was to get these guys over. You know, even though I was only you know in my early 30s and right. still had so much more, um, you know, for them, I was a utility player, which at the same extent isn't a bad thing because they put a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of responsibility on me with working with a lot of these guys. And like I said, I named them before, and you had too, uh, Randy Orton, Dave Batista, Shelton Benjamin, CM Punk, etc. The list goes on. You know, I, I was still very, it was frustrating because I could easily be getting over as well. So, you know, it's it's weird once you uh, lose a little bit of that shine that the WWE sees in you, you get very much typecasted and uh, it's very hard to break out of, as we all know, you know. Yeah. And go ahead, Eric. Sorry. No, no, you're fine. Go ahead, Barry. You're good. Oh, no, I was just going to say with Jericho having a spot like he does now, 
Do you, are do you guys still talk or you guys? Um, we are certainly friendly, but uh, I, I I haven't talked to him since he's been in AEW, and I certainly wouldn't uh, would never ask uh, for a job. Uh, you know, somebody if, if somebody was really interested in my services, I think they'd know where to find me. Not right. like that, not like that, but I no, never, I just I, meant I, like you know. with with him having the stature that he does, and he and I I put him over on the show a, a ton, but. You can say whatever you want about him. He's an asshole, dick, whatever. Like that dude fucking role. cares. You know what I mean? He yeah. helps guys. He he does stuff. And that's why I was just like, you know, if you guys stayed in touch, because he was at the beginning of your career. You know what I mean? And Lance yeah. as well. Do you? Yeah. I mean, are those guys you stay in touch with? No, I don't, to be yeah. honest with you. No, no hard feelings or anything. It's just, you know, we'll, we'll exchange a word or two on Twitter, but that's it. You know, I really, I, I don't talk to many people outside uh, outside my my family at home, to be honest. Okay. One more thing about the ECW rebrand. Um, I spoke earlier about how the DVD documentary came out in 2004, which exceeded their expectations wildly. Right. And to me is my favorite. That's up there. It's favorite wrestling documentaries of all time. It's so fucking well done. And that, which led to a one night stand. Yeah. Um, how talk to me about your memories of one night stand. Um, it's, one of my favorite things to watch when people come to the house and they want to see a pay-per-view, I love showing them that just to see like John Cena getting treated like he did and all kinds of shit. Tell me about that pay-per-view. Oh, it was just, uh, it was a great uh, environment. It was a true ECW environment. It was something that I think fans, fans in the, in the New York Philadelphia area really never got to say goodbye to ECW. And even though this was, you know, either a one night only or some people had predicted it was going to be something more, which it ended up becoming. Um, you know, uh, I just think it was uh, it was something that was in the waiting for so long that once it finally happened, it was just like whatever goes on from this moment on, at least the, the fans have that, which is actually a pretty fair portrait of what ECW was, which is pretty cool. Alright, I got I just got a couple other things here, and kind of put you on the spot here. If you could, you know, say in the future, whatever, you pass on. You got a time capsule, you can put three matches in there for people to, to see your career and say, that dude had it. Um, I would say me and Jerry Lynn, Heat Wave 98. Uh, me and Sabu, Anarchy Rules 99. And, um... Actually, this is a good one, and it's a, a lot of people don't know about this one. Uh, Shane Douglas and myself from uh, 1998 at the ECW Arena, 98 or 99. It was just a, you know, just a one-off match that we had uh, at the arena, and uh, I would say those three would definitely be the ones that I'm uh, most proud of. Okay, and ba- and basically your your favorite arena to work. Hmm. That's a good one. I don't know. Or city. Ah, I'd say, listen, my favorite arena, and this is going to, people are going to kind of, but they'll understand, uh, Poughkeepsie, the Mid-Hudson Civic Center. Yeah, okay. That was always a favorite. That and, um, and of course, the Hammerstein. Hammerstein Ballroom. Yeah, and then, and then it would be Philly and Queens. But uh, Poughkeepsie would be my number one because not only did um, did I work a lot there for the WWF, I main evented a couple of shows there for ECW, and I main evented one there with the ECW title against my friend Scott Hall. 
um, which was really cool. Um, we had a one-on-one match there. So I, I would definitely say the uh, Mid-Hudson Civic Center uh, holds a special place for me, definitely. Is there anybody working today, whether it be ECW, or I'm sorry, AEW, NXT, WWE, Impact, wherever, that reminds you of yourself? Joey Janela, I like, but he does. He, his attitude reminds me of me a little bit, but he's on a whole different level. But uh, he does a little bit, and um, he would kill to have your athleticism. By the way, <laughs> I'm just <laughs> probably. Um, I've known him since he was 14. He used to live right down the street from my mother-in-law, and he would come over uh, when I was off. Uh, and just staying at my, my at my mother-in-law's house, he'd come over and say hi, and uh, I would talk to him all the time about wrestling just when he was a kid. It's funny. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, uh, Sammy Callahan being another one. I, I think he's certainly got a little bit of that in him. From Ohio, right down the road from me. Yeah, right on. Yeah. yeah. This is kind of a pertinent question as well, and this, and then I'll I'll be done with you, and let you enjoy your night. But um, you catch a you catch a lot of shit, and and you know, what is the biggest misconception about Just Incredible that people that people might have? I don't know. I really don't know. I, I don't think much about it. I mean, if I honestly, and, and being honest, if I really felt that way or. or even put that in my head, I'd drive myself crazy. You know, um, I'm a pretty good guy. Um, I'm as good as I can be to all, to the fans, to everyone. I mean, you know, like anything else, I mean, I've done some things that aren't necessarily awesome, but I mean, I think we all have, it's just, uh, when I do some stuff, it just happens to be on blast, you know? Right. Um, But even that stuff is a lot of it, uh, I would imagine, has been blown out of proportion because I'm a 47-year-old married man with three beautiful children. One of them uh, is a junior in college. Um, And I live a a pretty uh, domesticated life, so I don't even imagine what is so controversial other than I think people thinking in their heads things. I don't know. I guess if people want to make you out to be a bad guy or – controversial or this or that then that's what they're gonna think of you um but when i'm home and i'm home more times than i am not home anymore it's not like i'm on the road i live a normal life probably more boring than most people listening to this because i don't go out i don't go to bars i just stay home with my family so i don't know i don't know what it is people think of me but i guess it's (laughs) part of the part of goes with the territory I guess, yeah. You know, sometimes fact and fiction uh, gets blended in together. Well, I absolutely, uh, it was a, an honor and pleasure, and I appreciate your time, man. Thank oh, you thank so you, much. Man. No, it's for, been awesome. It's for been talking great. with me, and yeah, it was an absolute pleasure for me, Eric. No, I hope you guys had fun. I certainly had a good time. So yeah, I had a lot you. of fun, man. You were so great to work with. You, I mean, gracious with your time. See, I'm and, not that bad after all. Right. <laughs> and I hope the people realize the, um, the 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 impact you've had on the on the business and how important you are, how you've kind of been everywhere. You have a really fascinating career. And um, anything you want to plug for you get out of here? Um, just real quick, follow me on Instagram at PJ Polacco and of course on Twitter at PJ Polacco and ProWrestlingTees.com backslash Just Incredible. That's all. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. Hey, Appreciate your time, brother. And good luck in everything you do, man. Thank Absolutely. you, fellas. Have a good night. Thanks, yep. guys. Right. See you, man. Great Thank to see you. you. Well, Eric, bud, that was uh, that 
That was just incredible. Not just the coolest, not just the best. That was just incredible. Yeah, man, that was uh, amazing. He was. I thought he was gracious with his time, answer our questions. Honestly, that was – we're not really like an interview podcast, but we had this opportunity. I knew you were excited about being the ECW fan you are. And, yeah, that I thought that went really well, man. I had a lot of fun doing that. Absolutely, and and especially on his wife's birthday, uh, couldn't thank him enough. So, uh, with that, man, this was a, a great show. I'm happy that we uh, got to do this. For sure, man, for sure. You can follow me on Twitter, at BFrost28. Eric, drop the credentials, sir. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Eric Brown 740 but of course, always follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and now TikTok by searching at doing the favor. Um, all are good at doing the favor.com. This is a, one of my favorite episodes we ever did. I, I had a total blast doing this and I want to let you guys know our next interview we are having. We're announcing this just now is Ken golden from golden auctions. He is a monster in the sports collectible industry and it isn't going to be an absolute pleasure recently featured in the new york times uh he was on logan paul's youtube channel busting pokemon boxes just amazing amazing guy and his legacy in the card industry is pretty much unmatched so we're very excited to have him on i guess we're an interview podcast now barry and this is uh like you said man we've talked privately this is you know our one of our biggest weeks ever like for our podcast, uh, having Justin on and having Ken Golden, who is like Eric said, a monster uh, get. Uh, I'm man, I'm super pumped, excited, and um, you never know what can happen, man. We we're branching out all the time. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. So you know, again, thank everybody for listening. I hope you enjoyed uh, the show. And again, I want to thank Justin Credible. He was amazing, incredible tonight. And with that, Eric, good night and God bless. Yeah. It goes one, two, three into the foe. Eric Abaria up with DTF, and that's for show. If you don't come correct, you get your ass full. So take a minute and chill until the next episode. Doing the favor, always bringing the heat. That's why Barry got your girl doing legwork in the sheets. My dude Eric holding down for the streets. Them Ohio players got the ears to the beat. Gotta say that we appreciate the time. Whether you're on the job or trying to unwind. Just a few more days until we're back live. Will be your lifeline I know you feel me on the mic with the flavor Let it marinate in something to savor We ball so hard, this is a layoff Until the next time, doing the favor Yeah Doing the favor Doing the favor uh, Doing the favor Till next time, doing the favor.